The Athletic. When you think back over more than 70 years of F1 history, what's the one question about something from the past you've always wanted to ask? The past doesn't mean it has to be from the days of black and white images and the engine sitting in front of the driver. And in recent weeks, we've been calling for questions about any era of F1 history, even recent things from the hybrid era, as we bring down the curtain on a year of raising money for the race's first charity partner, Blood Cancer UK. We figured the best way to celebrate raising over £10,000 for this incredible charity was to take our Bring Back V10s podcast, which regularly answers questions from our audience about F1's V10 era, and open up that format to any question about any era of F1. I'm the show's regular host, Glenn Freeman, and for those of you listening in our main F1 podcast feed and perhaps hearing the Bring Back V10's theme tune for the first time, we'd love for you to check out the show properly once you're done listening to this episode. Also, where have you been up to now? We've just finished our seventh series and you'll find nearly a hundred episodes in our feed where we revisit classic stories and races from 1989 to 2005, which we define as the V10 era. And of course, we love the V12s and the V8s that they raced against as well. If you want to hear a bit more about why we chose to support Blood Cancer UK, which is very personal to me as I've been living with a form of blood cancer since 2019, then stick around at the end of the episode and I'll share that story in more detail. But for now, let's get on with why we're here, and that's answering questions ranging from the very start of the World Championship in 1950 to talking about DFVs, 1980s turbos, of course, the V10 era, and then the V8s that followed, and even the hybrids, which, and this seems ridiculous to say, are now into their 10th season in F1. All of these questions were submitted in conjunction with a donation to the race's Just Giving page for Blood Cancer UK. And we are overwhelmed with how many of you got involved and the contribution you made to our overall total. When we opened this up, we hoped that this podcast would tip us over the 10,000 mark for the year, and we did that comfortably in the end, so thank you very much. Joining me for this, we have three regulars from Bring Back V10s, and voices you'll be familiar with, even if you're listening to us in the main F1 podcast feed. Ed Straw, Mark Hughes, and Matt Beer. And Ed, we have to start with you, because I think our regular F1 podcast listeners will be desperate for the comforting sound of your voice. We've got a huge pile of questions to get through here which one are you most looking forward to well of my questions there's nothing about LaRousse so there's a nice one about applying a popular documentary series to F1 history that I think was quite a fun one but there's also an excellent question that somebody fired in your direction that I'm looking forward to that I hope turns up later on yeah yeah people will understand what that question is and what your reference is there and and if they could see you they'd understand why you've got a smug smile on your face as well uh, Mark, welcome along. Which question stands out for you? I like the one about the DFV because there's so many facets as to why that was significant. So it gives me a chance to chomps on a bit about that and the rest of you can put your feet up and take a break then. Yeah, that sounds good. We often get asked when are we going to bring back DFVs. So uh, that's part of the reason we opened it up here. If uh, If you've been asking us to cover a different era of F1, this was your opportunity uh matt welcome along you're now our MotoGP podcast host but we're back on four wheels here which question are you most looking forward to there was one about a late 90s back marker where as soon as i read the question i just went nah out loud so i'm going to expand on that answer slightly when it comes to it 
Yeah, I put this list together and I can't even remember. Oh, yes, I can. I know who that is. <laughs> okay, yeah, we'll get to that one in a bit. Uh, but let's crack on. And Ed, you can take the first question, which is from Michael Armadi. Uh, Michael says, hypothetical question. Imagine Yano Trulli would have won Suzuka 2009. Would that have changed Toyota's and his own fate? So this was Toyota's home race just before they ended up leaving F1, Ed, and, and truly was magnificent that day, wasn't he? Yeah, it was an absolutely brilliant drive from him. He finished second, jumped Lewis Hamilton, I think, along the way. Couldn't do anything about Sebastian Vettel, but it was, I would say, one of Jano Trulli's finest Grand Prix drives. He could be erratic, but that race, he was just bang, bang, bang. It was a classic refueling era drive, one of the very best. Now, it was about a month later, Toyota announced their withdrawal. It didn't come as a complete bolt from the blue. Those in the team knew it was very much on the cards. And obviously, there was a feeling that a win on home soil, finally getting that breakthrough, could change what would have happened. And it's certainly possible, although there's no guarantee of it, because this was a time of global financial crisis. Japan was suffering quite a bit. If I had to guess, I suspect that a Japanese Grand Prix win would probably have led to a continuation of the effort, but on a base on the basis of reduced spending. They were already internally trying to put something together with that, with a driver lineup of probably Sebastian Buemi, who they admired back then, and obviously went on to be a sports car driver for them, and perhaps Kami Kobayashi, who was just about to drop in for those two races and completely change the course of his career. Trilly was waiting till mid-November and the decision about his future, because I think he was quite hopeful of staying on if it happened. I suspect they'd have wanted to keep on the winner of Suzuka if he had done, if they decided to continue. But a lot of that would have depended on whether Trilly was willing to take a, probably another pay cut. He wasn't quite on as much as he originally was with Toyota, but he was still pretty well paid for, for what he was doing. So I think if it had kept Toyota in, I don't think it would have substantially changed the story. And I think it's still very 50-50. But you can absolutely see... Toyota getting caught up in the excitement, particularly as Suzuka win. I think anywhere else it could have been a nice farewell victory. It's like, right, we we came, we struggled, we won, go out on a high. But Suzuka win might have changed that. But I don't think it would have meant that Toyota would have gone on to win championships and fulfil its potential because the same fundamental problems would have been there, especially if they cut the spending further. Yeah, I know that's a race you're fond of, so I'm glad that I'm glad we had that question. Uh, the next question is the one you one of the ones you mentioned at the start, and we'll all have a crack at this. Marios uh, Ganzudis uh, asks, which F1 season do you think would best translate into a drive to survive like series? Obviously, it has to have plenty of drama on and off track, politics and controversies. Uh, Matt, you can go first. Oh, you're going to approve of this answer. In fact, you could probably guess it. 1997 for me. Excellent. Uh, there's, there's, okay, there's been like better quality seasons in terms of overall performances and eventual world champions, but that season had so much. And one of the things that do, I do appreciate about Drive to Survive, which I'm a little bit skeptical about in various ways, is it does tell stories up and down the field pretty well. And what I love most about 97 is that you had such a great array of narratives it had this amazing title battle between two very different characters in Michael Schumacher and Jacques Villeneuve but almost every team got a look in at the podium at some point during the season and it even well I was going to say one that didn't one I'm thinking about one that barely even turned up and that's Lola even that is a story in it of, of epic you'd want an episode on Lola oh you? absolutely so in terms of general I don't what's what is uh drive to survive normally 10 episodes something like that I don't think you could do 97 in fewer than 12 episodes because you kind of need two to cover off 
everything that happened around Villeneuve and Schumacher that year. You need one that just follows an increasingly morose Heinz Harold Frentzen looking baffled around for a season. There's there's so much in 97. So um, can we, maybe they can make it happen in an animated form now. Yep, I would uh, happily consult on that. Uh, Mark, uh, what would you pick? How far back are you going? I'm going back quite a way. 1982. Um, I know there's just been a film done about Villeneuve Peroni, which was the defining drama of that season, had such a Machiavellian backdrop behind the scenes, but there was so much more going on besides. I mean, you had the elemental struggle for control of the sport between FIA and the teams led by Bernie. Um, That was still ongoing. There were so many dramas within the team, as well as a civil war at Ferrari. There was a civil war at Renault between their drivers, Prost and Arnoux at their home Grand Prix. Um, The sport was really struggling to come to terms with the massive performance of the turbo cars, ground effect grip and qualifying tyres. So, you know, you'd go out for qualifying, you'd twice as much grip and 40% more power than you'd had up up until that point in a whole weekend and only one flying lap in which to, you know, try to exploit that as the tyres would be finished after that. So just capturing the drama and the stress of that alone would be a fantastic episode, let alone everything else that was going on. There's story of the total genius of ragamuffin Irishman Tommy Byrne, who was in one of the back market teams, who features in a great book, I might say, getting to yeah, F1. Yeah, a good book about that. Yeah, yeah, it is good. You should have a look at it. Uh, Crashed and Burned. Um, getting to F1 and, and, and feeling so out of place there. Brilliant talent, who even Ayrton Senna used to steer clear of competing against in the junior formula. Then there's the comeback of the legendary world champion, Nicky Lauda, and, you know, the unlikely glory of how that panned out. Um, there's the Hollywood element of the 42-year-old legend Mario Andretti coming back to his beloved Monza on a personal invite of commendatory Ferrari, setting pole position, improbably. Um, sadly, there's tragedy too, which was awful in, in, in real life, but gold dust for a, a dramatised documentary maker. So yeah, that would be my vote. Yeah, there's so much to 1982. Uh, Ed, where are you going with this? Well, it's nice and orderly because purely by chance I'm hopping in the time machine and going back even further. And I'm pushing a little bit to the limit by going to 1961, where you had a major rule change. One and a half litre engines, lots of politics around that. The Intercontinental Formula, attempted breakaway. Cooper slumping, having won the last two championships. The great shark-nosed Ferrari. The Von Tripps, tragedy at Monza. Giancarlo Baghetti blazes onto the scene. Wins his first World Championship Grand Prix, as well as a few non-championship races before that. Inevitable Sterling Moss not winning the championship. Innes Island gets a win. Phil Hill, American World Champion. Two other top American drivers in Dan Gurney and Richie Ginther. So that fits in very well with the whole drive-to-survive thing. It's a season packed with storylines and characters that I think could, even though you do a 10-episode series, there are only eight World Championship races, you're uh, you're having to stretch the material a bit more. But I think there's so much in that series that could work very, very well to a drive to survive. And if you want to stretch into non-championship, there was a four-wheel drive car winning an F1 race with Sterling Moss in the Ferguson at the Alton Park Gold Cup. So you've got a little bit of everything there. And I think you could probably make two series out of that. I love the variety. I am going to break the trend of us going further and further back in time. I would pick, well, Matt's chosen 97, so I've got to pick something else. I'd pick 2012, um, a season I really enjoyed. You know, lots of winners, seven seven winners from the first seven races, a great championship fight. Fernando Alonso dragging a Ferrari against the odds into championship contention and keeping it there. And then random things like um, the Roman Grosjean getting banned, Kimi Raikkonen's back, Michael Schumacher's final season and... Lewis Hamilton deciding to sign for Mercedes, which obviously became defining of everything that's happened 
since. So, so lots there. But as Matt mentioned, because they talk about so many teams, what would be great about 2012 is that so many of those teams would have weekends where they were suddenly competitive and, and even winning races. You know, Williams winning a race. Um, things like that would be, be fantastic to cover. cover. The next question uh, is another one that everyone can take a swing at. Uh, Jamie Willis says, bring back explosive turbos. Many 1980s F1 drivers spent their careers in unreliable machinery. Who would you like to have seen given a chance in a front-running car for a season? And Jamie picks Ginzani. Um, Ed, you can go first this time. Yeah, Ginzani's an interesting choice. He spent far too long driving a Salas to have had any uh, decent results. Now, there may be an adjudication on whether this is eligible, but it seems to be focused on the 1980s. And I'd have been very interested in seeing 1980s Martin Brundle in a front-running car. Yeah, that'd be my choice. I'm allowing it. Ideally, pre-crash Martin Brundle. He had a crash quite early in his career in Dallas that did him quite a bit of damage. But he was an absolutely uh, brilliant driver. So, yeah, I'd like to see Martin Brundle. My backup, if you didn't allow that, was actually Michael Andretti. Get him into F1 earlier. Perhaps around that time he was finishing second in IndyCar. So, yeah, I think those are two drivers who could have done quite a bit with a slightly different opportunity in that era yeah totally agree with that mark who would you choose i like jamie's very left field choice of pier carlo Gonzani. so in the same spirit i'm going to go for one of Gonzani's teammates at a seller corrado farby uh brilliant in the junior categories uh he did a shared driver brabham in the first half of the season with his brother teo when teo was otherwise engaged in indy cars and on his last appearance detroit he had qualified teammate nelson piquet and then he just walked away from the sport when no further offers came. But he was super talented. And um, one guy from that time who I felt had enormous potential but doesn't really fit the criteria of the question because he didn't drive in turbos was uh, Roberto Guerrero. And he had the potential to be Colombia's first Grand Prix winner decades before Montoya. But um, yeah, if it, to answer the question, Corrado Farby. Nice. How are you following all this up, Matt? Uh, I'm going Manfred Winkelhock. On the, which I don't think would have turned out particularly well necessarily. You know, he was certainly rough around the edges, but some of the some of the qualifying performances he did in the ATS, a particularly chaotic team, I absolutely loved when I was learning about F1. Like I kind of read everything I could and watched every Duke video season review I could about the early eighties when I was getting into F1 in the early nineties. And I I loved the kind of underdog magic of what Finkelhock was doing. Um he he never got a chance in anything remotely near front-running machinery before he, he died in a sports car crash. Um, I also enjoyed Joe Winklehock's uh, exploits in Super Touring. So when uh, Marcus Winklehock got that one-off race in 2007 managed to lead it, I just kind of thought that was a little bit of justice for the Winklehock family to finally lead a Grand Prix even if only for, for two minutes because there was an awful lot of talent among them, particularly, particularly with Manfred in terms of raw Larry ability. Love it. Well done, Jamie. Great question that's brought up some names that uh, may never feature again on this show. Now we're going to jump forward into the hybrid era. I'm going to put these two questions together and chuck them to Mark. The first is from Matty D, 1989, who says, Given the mystery after the 2016 Spanish GP, what can be told regarding the fallout of the Mercedes driver's crash and the rumours of Hamilton quitting mid-season, leading to Rosberg's rushed new deal and subsequent World Championship win? And Joshua Hartnell says, if Hamilton had won the 2016 championship, would Rosberg have stayed? And how and when do you think there would have been enforced changes at Mercedes due to how toxic it was? Uh, and Joshua says, great effort as always, guys. Quite a lot to get stuck into there, Mark. Where do you want to go with the 
the final season and all the drama that came with it of the Hamilton Rosberg partnership. Yeah, um, obviously there was a lot of uh, very Ill, Ill feeling and uh, internal disruption as in the aftermath of that accident in Spain. But I don't think there's any particular mystery about it. I, you know, I think um, any any conspiracy about it resulting in Rosberg being gifting any gifted any favorable deal is just it just. Uh, you know, it's um, conspiracy theory nonsense. It's total BS. It just didn't happen. But um, in in the social media age, you know, things that might be in somebody's head that, that actually come out onto social media, there's somehow you, they become part of the discussion and sort of merged in with the actual authentic. Um, but no, I don't, there was no, there was no impact in terms of any deals being done as a result of that. And it wouldn't surprise me if Hamilton actually had threatened to retire in the middle, but just as an emotional outburst. But there was no, absolutely, it's just, you know, inconceivable that there was any deal done within within the, the team. But um, how it would have played out if Nico hadn't won the title, I'm for sure he would have stayed on. He was on a mission to try and win the world title. It was the the you know the pinnacle of his life. That's what that's what he was chasing, which is why he was able to retire instantly as soon as he'd achieved it. Um, I I don't think there would have been any changes. I think the the team would have just had to manage them as best they could. They, you know they were getting performance from them. They understood that that comes with a certain amount of disruption when you got two drivers in the same team fighting for the world title you know, of course there were going to be stresses um, but in the great scheme of things it wasn't all that toxic you know not by the standards the historic standards it was it was nothing like Senna Prost or PK Mansell or something like that it was I'd describe it more as general irritation with the other <laughs> and Rosberg trying to use a bit of psychological warfare when he realized he couldn't you know just overpower him on track so yeah I, I don't I don't think it would have um Anything would have. I think the, the 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 partnership would have just come to its natural end when it had done. I don't think either one of them would have um, been released. I do think it's a shame that we didn't get to see Rosberg in the the next generation of cars that followed in 2017. See him defend a championship. Hopefully, he would have run number one on a car. I'm always fond of that. And also see how he would have got on when Mercedes had a bit more of a challenge. You know, Ferrari in particular were much better in in 17 and 18. So it would have given a different dynamic to that rivalry next question is from dave nelson known probably better uh, as f1 broadcasting on twitter dave says great cause to raise money for thanks very much uh had brazil 2008 ended differently uh and two hungary 2009 not happened would felipe massa have ended up becoming a multiple time f1 champion so i assume there we're saying massa wins the championship in 2008 and then doesn't suffer his injury at hungary 2009 what do you think ed it's possible but i think probably not massa was very effective in 07 and 08 in particular wouldn't have won it in 09 obviously because even without the accident the car wasn't anywhere near up to it alonso came along in 2010 and of course originally that was going to be likely to be in 2011 but they paid off reich and then who'd had the uh, the 2010 extra year automatically triggered based on the terms of his contract so he would still need to have beaten Alonso now it's very difficult to say how much difference the accident made to Massa as a driver 
I think he was kind of in his golden zone with the way the cars were. Very, very good at just a slightly strange driving style where he's just very good at keeping the minimum speed up, even though he wasn't the most precise. And it worked really well with, with those cars. I can't see him, even without any impact from the injury, consistently beating Alonso. So I think it would probably have been a fairly similar story. But I have many times spoken with Massa about whether that injury made any difference to him. He's adamant it didn't. It seemed like it may have done, so perhaps he could have been a little bit more effective. But I think even a Massa at his best was going to end up losing out to Alonso. And so it's either he hasn't got the car or he's got a teammate alongside him who's probably going to beat him. But I think obviously Massa would have been a worthy champion in 2008. So would Lewis Hamilton. So would Robert Kubica, actually, for that matter. You can have more than one worthy champion in a year. And I think, yeah, I'd have no objection to him being a one-time world champion, but I suspect it would have needed to come then for it to happen, which is why I don't think there'd have been a second or third championship in his future. You make a really good point about him being a worthy champion. I often see people saying that you know, it was good that Hamilton won that title and we don't have Felipe Massa on the list of world champions. If you watched F1 in 2008, the way Massa drove, he would have been a thoroughly deserving world champion. He was superb that year. Next question is from Keelan Martin. Uh, Matt, I think this might be the one you were mentioning earlier that I worked out halfway through. Um, do you think Tora Takagi was an underrated talent? How nah. different... <laughs> let's <Done>. move on <laughs> <Yeah>. how different <laughs> could it have been if honda did manage to run a team for 2000 with him as its lead driver uh, he holds the record for the most wins in a season in super formula so uh, matt you can expand slightly on uh, the grunt you've already made <laughs> yeah. in answer to this question uh over decades of f1 there's been this hunger for a japanese driver who can turn all the all the talent they've got into consistent results and I, I remember really clearly all the excitement about Toro Takagi when he was coming towards F1 and I think he's one of the the worst examples of actually translating ability into achievement in F1 I just can't remember any point in his brief F1 career where he looked like he'd live up to the hype he'd had behind him unlike people like Takuma Sato, Kamui Kobayashi, even Nukio Katayama and that amazing 1994 set of performances from Katayama there just wasn't a spark from Takagi when he was in F1 or when he was in IndyCar, either flavour of IndyCar, because he did both with some very solid teams in Walker Racing and Monan Racing. There was a kind of ongoing theme in the feedback from his teams in both F1 and IndyCar that you know communication problems were, were always there. He was inconsistent. He was erratic. It just There was too big a gap between what he was capable of in theory and what he'd shown in Japan, both... You know, before he came to F1 and when he popped back there between F1 and, and IndyCar and what he actually delivered. So, um, no, if anything, I think he was overrated in terms of how much faith people had in him briefly for tra- translating his talent from what he was doing in, in Japan to F1. So if Honda had run a team for 2000 with him as his lead driver, he would have quickly been outperformed by whoever was his, in theory, number two driver, and it would have all been a bit of a shambles. Sorry. As he's a backmarker driver, I'm obliged to add a small note to that. One additional thing that I think he struggled with is he seemed to find it very, very difficult to change with the car and adapt to balance shifts and that kind of thing. That seemed to be one of the things that made it harder for him to deliver. He struggled a bit more in the races and in qualifying. And actually, if you look at his F1 qualifying record, it wasn't astonishing or anything. So I think that was another factor that he sort of sat below his peak for far too much of his time in the car, if you like. And for whatever reason, it just worked a lot better for him when he was still in Japan and in a perhaps slightly more familiar environment. 
Our next question is from Hugh Douglas, who says, Hello, Glenn. In between turfing out the highly underrated Elio De Angelis, torpedoing a works Renault engine deal and bolting to McLaren at the first chance, did Ayrton Senna accidentally help kill Team Lotus? Ed, that's a big claim. Yeah, it's quite an interesting question. It's not one I've specifically thought of, but there's there's definitely a, a foundation for it. De Angelis did feel he was forced out. I don't think that was actively Senna doing it, beyond just Senna doing what Senna does and wanting to get the team galvanised around him. And De Angelis felt he was a little bit ignored, so he made the ill-fated decision to move on to Brabham. And actually, I think Senna quite liked him as a teammate. Obviously, yeah, he was desperate for Honda engines for 87. That did make Lotus basically break its contract with Renault, which wasn't very helpful. He also had one other interesting effect because he wanted to see evidence of more development budget being spent. So that led to Lotus breaking their player sponsorship for the John Player uh, livery and switching to Camel. So that increased their sponsorship from about $2.5 million a year, which was about a quarter of what McLaren was getting from Philip Morris to about $7 million. The funny thing was that Senna had demanded they do this or something like this, to get more development money in to justify him staying. But that then inadvertently led to his contract being renegotiated because it had players referenced in it, and he basically sucked up a load of that new money. So that's Peter War, who was managing the team at the time, said, well, he made us do this, and then he sucked up all the money anyway. So he definitely had an effect on what was happening with Lotus. However, did he kill Lotus? I don't think so. I think that the pathway to that started when Colin Chapman died a few years earlier. The Chapman family wasn't keen on investing. Lotus was already falling behind technologically as others were pushing on. And I think probably what Senna did is perhaps he led to Lotus burning out a little bit more quickly, but also he gave it a bigger peak in that mid-80s period where I don't think they'd have been there without him. He won six of their last seven races. D'Angelis did get one win in that period. And I think overall... Lotus was on that trajectory after Chapman. Senna certainly had an impact. It might have it might have lasted a bit longer, but a bit less spectacularly, burned less brightly in, in that period. I don't think you can blame Senna for that, though, although he certainly did cause a few headaches uh, for that team. Yeah, I'd concur that the underlying trend behind the scenes at Lotus was underinvestment, and there was no way they were going to be keeping up with how Ron Dennis had redefined the terms of what you needed to do in terms of finance to field a competitive team and I actually think that far from accelerating Lotus's demise Senna actually extended it by for three years coming up with performances that in no way the team warranted and um, I think that he made it look way better than it was during that time so uh, my answer would be no. Yeah that's my feeling as well he kind of he kind of dragged out Lotus being competitive for probably longer than it should have been. Next question is from Ben Harris who is one of our most loyal supporters back when we started this in 2020. So good to have a question from Ben. Uh, Ben says, does the constant rolling change in F1 rules and tech make F1's history more fascinating than other sports? And does it make history more or less useful in covering the present? Matt, what do you make of that? That's a lovely question, isn't it? Um, So, right, slightly convoluted answer to this. (laughs) F1 is the only sport, sorry, motorsport is the only sport I follow in depth. I read a lot about football, partly for the relaxation of reading about a sport I don't actually have to work in, but really motorsport is my is my sporting expertise. And yeah, I think the amount of variety you get in there as a result of the amount of format changes, tech changes, how different all the different 
branches of motorsport. I know this is an F1 specific question, but the fact that motorsport covers so many things that aren't F1 and are so different, I think really helps kind of increase my personal in, engagement in it. And I do think that kind of helps its broader following as well. There's all, although F1 is in some ways profile-wise more dominant than ever these days, there is something for everyone within a motorsport context. And you know, between personalities and tech and, and racing, there's, there's so many different ways you can engage in motorsport. So yeah, I think it does. Um, I I think experts in most other sports would probably argue that there's been an awful lot of constant rolling change in rules and tech across any sport. It, you know, it's just perhaps more nuanced and small when you look at you know what a 1950s football felt like compared to a 2020s one, for instance. It's not as it's not as stark if you put those alongside each other as uh, a 1950s F1 car and a 2020s F1 car. It, I, I like the fact that the question asked about covering the 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 present as opposed to just like engaging with it because i do think it's quite coming out from a journalist point of view it's yes it makes it less useful because you're you're constantly gonna have readers going but how does this person compare to this person and you almost have to go they you cannot just compare them in the slightest don't even try you know but people will always ask yes which i quite like but the answer is always you can't do it you know really once you get like 30 years apart if that it's just it's not worth even even trying everything has changed too much um i like the visual variety though i kind of like if i'm doing a picture selection the fact that a 1980s f1 car is so much more striking difference wise you know if you're covering football a 1980s haircut is the bigger difference as you're going to get in your picture selection really and the shorts yeah even that though it's not it's not it's still not as stark and dramatic so I would say, yeah, it, it also there's a degree to which because history has been so different to the present, it almost makes it inaccessible in some ways. It's very, you know, I my interest goes back to the early 80s. I can get into the 70s quite a bit. But then there's a kind of cutoff point where even I, as someone who's worked in motorsport for 20 odd years, kind of goes, mm, I can't engage with how different this race is and how different the demands of it were. And I think that is a, that can be a problem for trying to bring bring readers with you into F1 history as well. So I think I've covered every every aspect there, basically. The complex variety of motorsport history is both brilliant and sometimes unhelpful. It's actually quite an interesting case study because I think Formula One magnifies that because it's such a fusion of technology and the human. But I think all sports, to a greater or lesser extent, are doing that. For example, if you were to compare, I don't know, in cricket, Don Bradman to Virat Kohli today, they're basically doing the same thing, hitting a ball with a cricket bat, trying to score runs, trying not to get out. But the rules have shifted and the technology used and the equipment has changed quite a bit that the way it's done is very very different I think you see that in a lot of sports but I think it's magnified in Formula One in a very very overt way because it's so complex so it's it's really interesting all sports can be reduced down to something really really simple get the ball in the hole get the ball in the net drive around x laps of this circuit as quickly as you possibly can but as soon as you peel out the 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 different layers peel down the layers of the onion as Toto Wolf likes to say of of Mercedes F1 cars these days you get more and more levels and I think where F1 really stands out is it does have more layers I think than perhaps a lot of other sports because of that interaction of man and machine and I think that's makes it more interesting and wide-ranging than perhaps a, a lot of sports. But I think every sport, when you get to that level of depth, has these uh, these layers of complexity that just are endlessly fascinating. The more you learn about it, the more fascinating it is. Next question is from Elizabeth, who says, How come Michael Schumacher was the only one to make the 94 Benetton work? Verstappen, Leto and Herbert only scored 11 points between them compared to 92 for Michael. Thanks for the podcast. Always great. Ed, uh, this is one of F1's great mysteries. Have you cracked it yet? 
Yeah, I think so. I'll make a bold claim at the start of this one. There's several things. Firstly, we have to look at the circumstance of 94 specifically. Three drivers were the number two driver in that car. JJ Leto was the intended driver. He broke his neck in a big crash at Stowe, I think, at Silverstone pre-season. He then came back too early by his own admission. He didn't have proper feeling in his fingers. and So he just was desperate to get back in. He couldn't drive properly. He wasn't recovered. So Leto was, regardless of the car, always going to be underachieving. Jos Verstappen was signed as test driver, so he started the season, so he sort of came in and out, dovetailing with Leto, very inexperienced, all potential and not enough refinements ultimately. I think that's probably the case for Jos Verstappen's whole career, but particularly so. Then and then Johnny Herbert right at the end came in for those couple of races, so he's in a car that he's only just dropped into. But of course, that struggle with Leto with Herbert rather continued in ninety five. And fundamentally Benetton was built around Schumacher, galvanized around Schumacher because he was so good. And what Schumacher could do was deal with a car that was very, very pointy and, and responsive. Johnny Herbert, I interviewed him about this a while ago and he was very interesting. He said that basically you coughed and the car turned in. And what the phrase he used, he said Schumacher could compute that, that sudden movement when you turn in and rotate the car in a way that Herbert couldn't. I don't know, maybe a pre accident Herbert would have been able to. But Herbert couldn't keep up with that. And that's a common thing with Schumacher. He had a car that was very much set up to work for that style, which can be quicker, but it's very, very difficult to do. Max Verstappen's another similar example uh, to this day. So I think you have a team that's built around a driver with a set of car characteristics that are fast but tricky. The best driver will always be the one that the team focuses on, combined within 94 a rotating cast of drivers who didn't have much chance. One thing I will add is that Leto in particular has multiple times said he felt there was never any difference in machinery between what he got and what Schumacher got. There's a lot of talk about that, but he felt it was always a fair fight. It's just Schumacher was very, very good. It's a, it's an extreme manifestation of a very common story when you're in a team along an all-time great driver. Yeah, Jos Verstappen's been asked that question about equality of machinery and uh, he got asked it on the F1 Beyond the Grid podcast. Uh, go and check it out and... Uh, Sense the tone of what he's saying and then decide what you think. Uh, interesting what you said about the car coughs and it turns, because haven't we recently heard Alex Albon say something very similar about the Red Bulls that are designed for Verstappen? I think he said the wind blows on them or something and they turn. Um, so, yeah, good good comparison there. Next question is from Chris Blows, who says, which V10 era backmarker driver would have done best in a front running car of their time? You can't pick a driver who had a stint in a front running car. Uh, Matt, who are you going to pick? I make, uh, basically, I, I know it's a backmarker question, so Ed is chomping at the bit to get involved, <laughs> so I'm going to make him wait. <laughs> mean. Uh, I've got a con- controversial answers to this because I really struggled with it, and I'm going to invoke what I call the Mikasalo rule. And so that actually most of the cream does get to the top and almost any back marker driver who I've had any kind of sense of, oh, would they have, would they deserve something good? Um, the experience of seeing Salo at Ferrari makes me go, no, they probably wouldn't have actually delivered when they got there. Um, because Salo was someone I thought was a really exciting talent and then didn't, okay, there was the near win at Hockenheim and stuff, but take him away from low downforce, uh, low, low drag circuits, didn't really do a lot in that Ferrari, in that stand instant. Um if pushed, I would go for a pre-injury Carl Wendlinger. I nearly would have gone for a pre-injury JJ Leto, but he did get in a front-running car. He just couldn't feel his fingers at the time. But I do find I, I think Carl Wendlinger before the Monaco accident was looking pretty interesting alongside some really interesting teammates through his career up to that point. And I, I don't think there's a lost world champion there. But uh, but from the kind of era that I, I I know best, I think he's one of the bigger unanswered questions who never got in the top team. 
Yeah, that's an interesting choice. Uh, go on then, Ed. You're, you must have had a long list for this. Who have you narrowed it down to? Who's your number one? Well, it's a very, very long list indeed. But I'm going for Justin Wilson. Now, I know he had that five race stint in a Jaguar that could qualify quite well, but wasn't great in the race. It worked his tyres uh, very hard. But most of his F1 career, his one season F1 career was spent in a Minardi. So I think he qualifies. Drive with a huge amount of ability, a little bit of a geometrical challenge given his height. So I think that would have always been a little bit of a uh, limitation in terms of fitting him in the car. But a lot of ability. He lost that Jaguar seat because Jaguar took Christian Clean. He was doing pretty well in F3, but had Red Bull backing at the time. I always remember seeing Wilson was probably one of the first drivers when I really clicked how much the really good drivers can gain in that turn-in phase of a corner, which is absolutely crucial. I remember that as well, watching trackside Formula Palmer Audi at Donington Park at the finale in 98, watching at McLean's, and you could really see it. And that was sort of uh, the start of a journey of understanding more about car dynamics and what drivers can do. And I think Wilson had a lot of pace, a really, really good driver, probably even in the States didn't have the career he should have done before his uh, his tragic death. But I think Wilson had a huge amount of ability. And I think in terms of if he could have got around that size challenge that would always have been there, I think he's probably the one who had the most potential to unleash. Certainly could have won races and we just didn't see enough of him in Formula One, sadly. Yeah, nice choice. We've had that question before on Bring Back V10s and usually when it gets asked... People say uh, that whoever asked the question submits uh, Pierluigi Martini as their suggestion and then says you can't pick him. Uh, let's move on to a question from the race's very own Josh Suttill. And I think tongue is firmly in cheek at the start of this question. Josh says lots of people have already asked this. No, they haven't. But thoughts on Suttill and Trulli's crash at the start at uh, the 2009 Brazilian GP their dispute afterwards, and whether Button would have won the title in Brazil without it. Uh, Ed, unpick that for us. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting argument. I think it stands out in the memory because Trulli and Sutil had a good disagreement about it in an Abu Dhabi press conference the race after, which was just quite amusing to watch. I think you can probably find that footage on uh, YouTube. For the accident itself, I think I don't know why Jarno Trulliad was complaining because he, he went around the outside of uh, Sutil at its turn five at Interlagos. So that sort of fast kink after the, the left-hander at the the end of the back straight because Sutil had to check up a little bit. So he was wide at the exit, lost it, spun into Sutil, and he felt he should have been left room, but live by the sword, die by the sword. It was a risky move. It was legitimate. He was legitimately there, but he lost it. It happens. So, of course, that caused the safety car. It's very difficult to be conclusive about whether Button would have clinched a title or not if that hadn't happened. Now, he was 14th in the queue when the accident happened, and that did take out three cars that were ahead of him, and it did influence the way the race played out. But there's a whole load of things that are just complete imponderables. The final thing that made sure he won the title that weekend was Barrichello, I think, had contact with Hamilton and had a puncher. In fact, I remember because I was doing a, 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 I'd agreed to do a, a piece for Autosport going into the Braun garage for the moment of Button clinching the title. And as I was wandering down, John Button, uh, uh, Jensen's late father, came up to me and just, just sort of said, oh, Rubens has got a puncher. And you could see he kind of knew it was about to happen, but he couldn't quite dare believe it. So I always remember that moment. So there's a reasonable chance it still would have happened because he was well ahead at the time. He had a 14-point lead heading in. I don't think it would have changed the destiny of the world title. He might have had to wait for Abu Dhabi, potentially, but it's very, very hard to say exactly what, what would have happened if that accident hadn't happened, but it would have been a bit harder to finish where he finished. So maybe, but it's impossible to create an alternative race from that point. There's not enough data uh, to go on because it fundamentally changed what happened. 
Next question is from Chris Parrott, who says, what was the Cosworth DFV engine? Why was it so good? Was it good for Formula One? And does F1 need something similar today? So, Mark, we're off to put our feet up. Take it away. The DFV became the standard F1 engine between late 60s and early 80s, uh, supplying about 80% of the grid, giving F1 the foundation that it become the huge entity it is to this day. And the DFE absolutely foundational in that role. Um, it was the best engine and it was available to anybody who wanted to buy one off the shelf. Um, in the previous one and a half litre formula, that role had been fulfilled by Conry Climax, but they didn't continue into the three litre formula. And the early days of that three litre formula before the DFE appeared, there were all sorts of antiquated pieces of junk in the back of many of the cars. I mean, even the Ferrari engine was an updated sports car engine from the 50s. It was ridiculously heavy, inefficient, big, needed huge quantities of cooling. The Maserati engine, which is another one from the 50s, suddenly brought back into life. It hadn't even been competitive in the 50s. Um, there were converted Indy engines, which were totally gutless at that capacity. All sorts of junk. The title-winning engines of 66 and 67, the, the Repcos in the back of the Brabham's, they were based on a road car mass production Oldsmobile engine, single cam. Just the DFE came and made all these look ridiculous. It was a new world. It was tiny, light, stiff, powerful, needing nothing like as much cooling. It's designer Keith Duckworth. If you if you can imagine the Adrian Newey of engine design of the time, it was him. He claimed he could tell if the shape of combustion chamber was right just by feeling it. And he, he revolutionized thinking about the the trade-off between the strength of combustion and the speed of fuel flow. So prior to that, engine design, racing engine design had been all about making the bang as big as possible. And he realized there was a much better compromise to be reached between that and the speed of the flow, getting the thing to burn fast. And he induced all sorts of tricks in the internals which give it that and give it that such great combustion. But he also concentrated really hard on reducing the um, power losses you get from churning the oil around. So you, there was a lot of um, attention paid to that. And it was massively more efficient than anything else. And the, the power of an engine is essentially defined by the pressures in the combustion chambers multiplied by how fast you can make a run. And the combustion chamber pressures and a DFE were pretty much as high as those of a current engine, which is mind-blowing. But they were limited at the time in how fast they could make a rev by the valve spring technology. There's only so fast springs will allow you to, to make the valves open and close. So it was limited to about 12,000 RPM. And it was only the invention of pneumatic valves in the 80s that liberated engine designers from that limitation. We quickly got up to around 20,000 revs in, in not very long at all. Um, I'd say it's the greatest F1 engine of all time, without question. Um, it was as if a superior alien technology had arrived and presented it and anyone could have it it was just amazing should f1 have it now i think it'd be very difficult now it was it was of its time at a time when um formula one was comprised of specialist teams that didn't have the resource to to create their own motors and their own engines um and you know were crying out for something competitive uh, and that, that that actually solved that in one one hit uh, you couldn't really do it now. You would have to reconfigure the, uh, what Formula One was about. It, you'd have to make it more like um, GP1. You know, it'd be a much simpler uh, category of racing than what we have now with all the 
um, automotive uh, involvement and stuff like that. So, yeah, I mean, some people would like that, I'm sure, but uh, it's sort of going back, going back to how it was. But that's it. It, it's, it, would, it wouldn't really work now in 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 the real world. But it was, yeah, a brilliant, a brilliant piece of engineering and um, one of the most important developments in the in the history of F1. Yeah, and I'm glad we've finally been able to pay tribute to it. I feel like every now and then it comes around where F1 wants to recreate that. You know, they want the off-the-shelf engine that independent teams can use to make themselves competitive, and uh, it never happens. Let's move on to a question from OC Guernsey, who says, if you could change the winners of World Championship deciders, so the total number of titles per driver correlated closer to how drivers are regarded in the debate of greatest ever, which would you change? So we're going to rapid fire this. Basically, pick a driver who's got too many or too few and tell us how many you'd give them. Uh, Matt, you can go first. I would uh, switch around the end of 89 to uh, bump Senna up by one title, but I'd give Prost 83 at PK's expense instead. Nice. Uh, Ed, what would you do? Well, I'm not entirely sure Matt's qualifies because there wasn't actually a last race decider in 89. So I, I vote... Ah, uh, I'm allowing it. I'm allowing it. A title <laughs> can still be decided, just not at the final race. Yeah, a decision still happens. Yes. Well, that's an, that's an interpretation. I thought that's... Yeah, it's my interpretation. Answer the question. Well, you're in charge. Um, yeah, I'd probably give Prost 83 and 84. I did only look at the final race deciders, which admittedly isn't specified, which bumps Prost up to six championships. Um which puts him third in my notion list because I've got Hamilton and Schumacher on nine, then Prost on six and Fangio on six as well, with Alonso on three because I wasn't sure about 2010 because he made a few mistakes there. Alonso on three or four. So that's my basic idea of rewriting history. Very good. Mark, where would you go with this? Um, I like Matt's uh, choices, actually, but um, I yeah, I would put Alonso um, ahead in 2010 and 2012. He was the he was the best driver in each of those seasons. Um but I'm going to be controversial and say I don't really value the Royal Championship as a mean of merit anyway. It's just something to give the the sport some popular appeal and it doesn't necessarily reveal the best driver because it's just a sort of hybrid of best driver and car combination. You know, if you just listed who were the best drivers in any particular year, you'd, you'd have something like the same guy Schumacher winning 13 years in a row, which probably would have done in equal cars. And can you imagine anybody switching on the TV for that? A few would, I suppose. But So um, in answer to the question, I wouldn't really change any because I feel it's meaningless anyway. <laughs> yeah, that's fair enough. Um, yeah, Michael Schumacher winning 13 in a row. Yeah, that would have been difficult. It's hard enough uh, for Bernie to keep people interested when he won f- um, five in a row. Uh, it's, yeah, I'd go with Alonso. Fernando Alonso, four-time world champion, just sounds better than... Fernando Alonso, two-time world champion. It doesn't do the man justice. Uh, Stephen Davis had a question about the Williams CVT transmission. It briefly experimented with in the early 90s. And Stephen directed that question to Gary Anderson. So we've put that question to Gary. And here's what he said. Yeah, back in 1993, um, we decided to have a look at the CVT gearbox. It was one of those times when, um, I suppose, Jordan, we were, we were sort of finding our feet and we didn't want to get left behind. We had high hopes. Um, we just started using Brian Hart's engine. So we were you know, trying to build the team up from a disastrous year in 1992 with Yamaha. But the one thing a CVT would give us would be this you know, sort of peak power, constant peak power, which you could run the engine at. Um, 
The honest truth is it was probably a bit early for us. We did get into discussions with a German company about the belts, the pulley assemblies, and how you would uh, manage it. Um, it's a steel belt, a V-belt. Um, basically, you have two pulleys. Um, one gets bigger, one gets smaller. That's how you sort of increase the car speed. But the RPM of the engine um, stays fairly stable, so it lets you maximise the power. Um, one of the things I think nowadays you could do is, you know, that you're now allowed to have um, a torque, the throttle pedal is a torque pedal, and that would have uh, made the CVT gearbox a much better package um, if you were looking at it now. But it will take, it would take some time. It wouldn't be, uh, you know, something you would do like overnight. You would uh, have to obviously develop it. And Williams were in the best position. They're, they had their active car. They had a huge understanding of... Um, active control of systems and basically the CVT gearbox would be one of those you would be hydraulically opening and closing those pulleys you wouldn't just be uh, using the lawnmower technology of your weighted pulleys um, you'd be opening and closing them hydraulic with hydraulic rams so you could actually optimize the position of the speed and the engine the little window of engine rpm that you need to use um, so it was something that was you know i think if if the FIA hadn't stepped in for 94 and said you have to have a minimum of four gears and a maximum of seven, it would have been one of these things where it would probably have found its way into Formula 1. I don't think it was um, too uh, dramatic as far as weight was concerned. I think the, the end result would have been, if it was uh, engineered properly, it would have probably been similar sort of weight package to a normal gearbox. Um, so I, I saw it with the future, but it was too early, as I say, for Jordan Grand Prix to, to really get excited about trying to really jump the gun and get in there with a test one. We, as I say, we did all the research, um, and we, d- we decided at that point in time, yes, it was worth a shot, but we really didn't have the resources or the manpower to, to dedicate to it. So one of those things that uh, might have been, wasn't. And probably just as well, to be honest, um, because you're always fighting the, the, the little detail. When you're a small team, you're always fighting the little detail of making it work, making it reliable. And that would have been really where we would have found it uh, very, very difficult. So no CVT for Jordan, but we did look at it very closely. Next question is from Matt. I don't think that's our Matt, uh, but he can tell us in a moment. Uh, who says, with a working cost cap now in place... Would it be feasible to bring back private testing? And how would you implement it? Could wind tunnel allowance be exchanged for on-track time? And Matt says, love the show. Mark, what do you think? If we if we wrapped it all up within the cost cap, could teams choose to go testing if they wanted to? In theory, I guess you could. Um, it, 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 it's not an impossible thing to, to structure and arrange, but I doubt many would be willing to give up tunnel time for it uh, you know simulation time is way more productive than test time when you when you lap time is the the arbiter so you know ideally you'd have both which is what we used to have before there were any constraints but you might be willing to give up a tiny amount of simulation time whether that's tunnel cfd or rig testing for a bit of track time but with simulation technology at the level it's at actual run on the track would just be for validation you know even if you could have it um, it costs the opposing view to that is that they, if they'd had track time, they'd have discovered porpoising last year earlier than they did, which simulation didn't reveal. But I think that was a very specific case. I, I don't think that would be a powerful enough deterrent for teams to surrender simulation time. I, I, I don't think they'd particularly go for it. 
I suspect there's a way you could do it that doesn't involve cutting into wind tunnel or simulation time. Just allow teams to do it. Set a notional value for what a test day costs just to make sure Ferrari doesn't gain under the cost cap from having its own track. It doesn't have to hire. But I think if you said, right, that happens and it costs X amount, I think people would be surprised how little track testing teams would actually want to do because it's not actually that cost-effective a thing. I think you'd see a tiny bit more, but not as much as people would think. Our next question is from Michael Sanderson, who says, what do you think the greatest story that never happened, e.g. a rumoured driver move that didn't happen or a team entry that fell through, was in the V10 era? And Michael says, thanks for supporting a great cause. So, Ed, you could go quite a lot of different directions with this. Where are you heading? Yeah, well, the wording greatest made me think I need to reach for something that could have been quite far reaching. So I'm going with the Honda F1 project that was abandoned. They were going to come in in 2000. Obviously, they had a car that tested a fair bit. Jos Verstappen driving Harvey Postlethwaite, the great designer. And it was all happening until it didn't happen for various reasons. We get into that at length on Bring Back V10, season two, episode two, I think, way back then. So have a listen to that. But I think that's something that could have had a seismic impacts and certainly would have very much changed what happened in the latter part of the bring back v10s era yeah i'm disappointed that didn't happen just because new teams are interesting and and new fully blown manufacturer teams are so rare uh, i would go down the driver route with this one and obviously there's so many rumors i, I think back then the rumor mill wasn't particularly robust um so rumors would come out of say italy or, or france or something and get picked up and go around but one that I feel it was rumoured. Um, there has been sort of scans of paperwork, of letters intent and that sort of thing. And it, I think everyone just feels it would have happened at some point. And that's Ayrton Senna to Ferrari. Now, I don't necessarily think Senna would have definitely done what Michael Schumacher did at Ferrari. But either way, it was going to be box office. So either Senna goes to Ferrari, drags them out of the doldrums, wins championships and given that I'm thinking this would have probably happened after his Williams stint that's probably the end of his F1 career right off into the sunset brilliant or it goes disastrously wrong and let's face it Senna would not be pulling any punches if he didn't think Ferrari was operating the way it should have so it would have been huge for F1 whether it would have been successful or a disaster yeah I think that's a story that could have gone so many different ways, depending on the timing, as you say. It's funny because as soon as you start thinking about driver possibilities, I instantly go towards the more stupid ones, the ones that wouldn't have worked. So, Of course you do. Things like Nigel Mansell getting that footwork offer for 91. Mansell in a footwork Porsche, what could go wrong? But obviously it would have gone very badly wrong. And a lot of those would have been funny to look back on and reflect on but they wouldn't have necessarily been greater. So then I started to think about, well, yeah, it is ones like Senna. And then you think, well, what would have happened if, say, Alessi had gone to Williams? Now, Alessi had his limitations as a character, but maybe going into Williams, into a championship-winning situation, it might have changed his development as a driver, and that raw ability could have translated into something more. So ones like that appeal. And it's also the opportunities for drivers who I think could have done a lot better. One of the ones that springs to mind is when Benetton offered Ivan Capelli Nanini's seat after Nanini had his helicopter crash but basically Briatori wanted Capelli to accept it on the spot but Capelli's position was well I'm interested but I've got a Leighton House contract I've recently signed to extend so I'd have to go to them and do it properly but Briatori didn't want that he was trying to kind of browbeat him into it so that would have been interesting because I think Capelli was someone who 
had a lot of ability and could have done a lot better than he did. So there's all these possibilities. But yeah, it's people going into good teams. What could Hill have done in the McLaren if he'd gone there? Certainly won races. I think those are the ones that have a more profound impact potentially. But the funny ones to think are the mega drivers going to terrible teams or Alain Prost did any one of the hundred Prost Ligier link ups that we've always talked about. So yeah, something something that could have produced some results, I think, would have been the one that would have had the the impact and interesting to see. Dave Smith has our next question. Dave says, What would F1 history and the present look like if Mercedes had made the perhaps more obvious choice of Sebastian Vettel rather than Lewis Hamilton as their lead driver for 2013? Matt, what do you think? More interesting. Certainly <laughs> recent history trajectory would have been would have been more interesting. So um I'm not gonna get into a full rewrite of the past decade here, but Assuming that Mercedes could have prized Vettel away from Red Bull in the way it prized Hamilton away from McLaren, which is nowhere near as likely at that point. Um, yeah, I'm sure Vettel would have walked the titles when Mercedes had its huge advantage. Um, I think he would have won quite a few of the others as well. He didn't have the range of Hamilton, you know, and the time, you know, could he have gelled with what Mercedes called its diva cars in the same way? possibly not his yeah his Vettel's peaks were amazing I think he's really underrated by history now because there was such a long gap between his peak and his F1 exit but you know I'm sure he'd have won a lot of titles uh in that Mercedes but I don't know if he could have coped with some of the difficulties as well as Hamilton did the flip side of that is what does Hamilton's career look like obviously and I think it took Mercedes to really really get the best out of of Hamilton particularly Mercedes post Nico Rosberg that kind of calmer environment really allowed Hamilton to properly thrive properly kind of find himself a bit more and really make his ability come out um yeah by that time he was a multiple world champion but it really really came out in terms of how adaptable and deep thinking and and psychologically stronger he could be with Rosberg out of the way and in a Toto Wolf-led environment so Hamilton having to bide his time where would he end up at McLaren through its awful years probably not would he end up at Ferrari instead or Red Bull as as Vettel's replacement I think either of those are, are very possible but I think that could have extended the Hamilton chaos period a little bit while making both those teams more successful than they would have been without him um to kind of wrap the answer up I think the overall outcome had been a significantly more interesting set of narratives in the second half of the 2010s because you'd have had not quite the best driver of the era in the best car and the guy who turned out to be the best driver of the era in some struggling and and not disorganized as such but some struggling teams um and they'd probably be kind of vying on an equalish number of championships around about now yeah that's really interesting uh next question is from i heart glenn thank you whoever wrote that uh who says which f1 driver past or present would you most like to spend an evening with down the pub? Uh, and I Heart Glenn says, great cause, and please, please keep these brilliant podcasts coming. Uh, Ed, who are you heading to the pub with? Yeah, well, I inevitably take this to mean who would I be most interested just to hear from and barrage with questions about the art of driving. So I inevitably reach back to the past because many drivers who are around in the past I've had the chance to interview. So I've been able to interview Sterling Moss, for example. But one I'd be fascinated to um, to speak to would be Jim Clark, who obviously was killed long, long before I was born. It'd just be fascinating to have, I think, a very, very quiet evening in the pub, just chatting to him about about his art of driving, how he goes about it. Obviously, there are a lot of technique things that he was very much at the forefront of, of popularising. So I just think that would be really, really fascinating. It would probably be very much a quiet rather than a raucous night, but that's the type of thing I like. Yep, nothing wrong with that. 
Matt, who would you take? I'd go for someone pretty recent, actually. I'd, I'd fancy a pint or four with Vettel. Um, partly because I don't especially like talking about motorsport in pubs. So that's, you know, motorsports work to an extent. I love it as well, but it's also work. So if I'm having a few pints, I want to be chatting about something else and playing some pool. Um, and I think Vettel's range of topics would be pretty awesome. But when we did drift onto motorsport, his appreciation and understanding of history and the kind of the breadth of his thought about it all would be would be really interesting to listen to, um, particularly as he got a bit hammered. Yeah, and you could ask him about, you know, there aren't many people you can take down a pub who you can ask them about the FW14B that they own. Uh, Mark, <laughs> who would who would you want to meet up with for a drink? Uh, James Hunt or Mike Halewood, they'd be great, raucous, funny company. Oh, um, <laughs> Good luck keeping up. <laughs> Chris Amon could be that as well, actually, but he would also be fascinating to talk to about uh, driving, the art of driving. Um, for a more serious discussion, not down the pub, maybe at a restaurant, talking about deeper stuff, you know, philosophy and psychology and human relations, probably Jackie X or Ayrton Senna. Um, of the current drivers, Alex Albon, bright, funny, insightful, down to earth. But they're all good guys, generally. There's not one I wouldn't enjoy sitting down with with a session, but they're all so fit they'd get twatted after a sniff of shandy, wouldn't they? <laughs> <laughs> um, <clears throat> I'm going to be completely unoriginal and say if, I was, if I'm given the opportunity to take any F1 driver to the pub it's obviously got to be Jack Villeneuve but the one key p- distinction here is that he has to be willing to be in my company for an evening because I get the impression <laughs> if I went with the real Jack and met him there for the first time after about 10 minutes he'd be like how how long before I can leave? How can how can I get away from this guy? So if he was willing and if he decided I was a great guy as well, uh, we would have a whale of a time. <laughs> Sounds likely, doesn't it? Next question is from Rishi, who says, uh, all the best raising money for a worthy cause. Thanks, Rishi. The question is, why did Graham Hill's results drop off so much after 1969? Was it age? Uh, his big late 69 injury, change of team or something else. What do you think, Mark? Actually, his form was already dropping off quite alarmingly in 69. He won Monaco that year, but he's generally being annihilated everywhere on pace by his new teammate, Jochen Rind. Um, you know, just two years prior to that, Graham hadn't been disgraced in pace against the great Jim Clark, you know, perhaps the greatest of all time. But by 69, yeah, it was all begin, beginning to come at him a bit fast, I think. I think it was just that. I think it was just, you know, he's, he was um, sort of reaching the, the end of his of his career anyway, even without the injury. I think the injury at Watkins Glen at the end of 69 marked the end of his serious career because he soldiered on in uncompetitive cars for a few years after that. But I think even without the accident, I think the signs were already there that he was no longer the force he'd once been. Next question's for you as well, Mark. It's from Yusuf Hussain, uh, who says, I recently read that David Coulthard only adopted left foot braking in 2000. Was this, uh, did this play a part in Mika Hakkinen's decline as his advantage over his teammate became diminished? Perhaps a little. I mean, left foot braking did buy your lap time and it was, it was essentially do it. And both uh, DC and Barrichello were very, very late adopters of it. Um, and that probably cost them, but... In terms of Mika, now I think you you're looking more to Mika than DC for the explanation. There it was really only in Mika's last season, two thousand and one, that DC had a comparable season. But Mika was really struggling for motivation by then. He he tried to retire mid-season at Monaco, but being talked out of it by Ron Dennis, his his heart was no longer in it. 
Um, but when the mood took him, he could still do stuff DC could only dream of, really. Mika's so-called decline was all within him. It's about his motivation. He was mentally exhausted. It was no longer doing it for him. Uh, and what Racing had previously given him was no longer there. It just it was it was empty. Um, and so he was just going through the motions for much of that final season. So I think that's more of the reason for, for the, 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 the dif- difference and gap to how it had used used mm-hmm. to have been. But yeah, definitely left foot break and would have bought DC some lap time. Bill Adkins has the next question saying, beyond what we saw in the media and DC's F1 Racing magazine Q&A, did Schumacher and David Coulthard personally hash out Spa 1998? And if yes, do you know how they left it? Did they agree to disagree? Was it friendly? Hostile? Were there apologies? Uh, Matt, fill us in. Well, from everything I've been able to, to, to find... The only time they actually specifically discussed this was when Bernie Eccleston forced them to do so and do a shake of hands at Monza two weeks after it happened. And the way Coulthard's described that conversation since, it was basically him going, so you going to take any responsibility for this yourself whatsoever, Michael? And Schumacher going, no, no, no. And, <laughs> and Coulthard then bringing up their Argentina clash that year as well and asking the same question and Schumacher still going, no, 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 no. Um, and that was, yeah, that was as far as that got. So I think they they didn't even agree to disagree i think the conversation must have just ended and they did the photo shoot with a handshake and walk off Coulthard has said how much better his and schumacher's relationship got later in in their respective careers i don't think there was ever an occasion though where um he then brought up spa night again where they were just chatting casually and went do you still think that wasn't anything to do with you um I would say at this point just to chuck, chuck it in quickly i do wish that Coulthard was a slightly better driver because i think him being able to take it to Schumacher a bit more often in that period would have made things so much more entertaining because of the kind of character he was. You know, he came across very corporate in a lot of ways at the time. But when you hear him talk about what he was thinking behind the scenes now and when you see the kind of character he later became in the media and stuff, I think that could have been a, a much spicier character-on-character character title fight than we actually actually got in that era. But as Mark said, Coulthard's peak um, wasn't really in the Hacken and Schumacher range and he couldn't access it often enough so yeah we had to settle for the occasional collision and spat and a a few really good drives i actually did an interview with schumacher one-on-one in the back of a limo actually as he was being driven to some doing abu dhabi um on the weekend of his final grand prix you know this the second career at mercedes and instead of just coming up with a list of questions to ask him i'd come i'd got hold of lots of people that were significant to his career either people he'd worked with or people he'd competed against to say what would you like me to ask Michael because this is something that you want to know from Michael and I got a range of interesting questions but DC's question was about that incident and um, and he'd said you know when he originally talked to Michael he'd said Michael have you never ever been wrong in your life about something and he said, Michael appeared to think about it and then said, no, I don't think so. <laughs> and he said, what I want to know is from him is, was he just winding me up when he said that? Or does he really believe he's never been wrong? And so I put that question to Michael and he had a little think about it. And then he smirked and he said, if I said, no, I'd never been wrong, it would wind him up even more, wouldn't it? I said, yes, 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 yes <laughs> it, would. it would. He said, okay, that's what I'm saying. Um, no, I've never been wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, I absolutely love that. Where where did that feature run, Mark? I was in Autosport and the the uh, the week after the final race, I guess. Yeah, okay. We'll uh, 
we'll, we'll dig that out and, and share it in the in the Bring Back V10s community, which is on Twitter. Head to the community section of Twitter. Look for Bring Back V10s, and uh, we'll, we'll find we'll find that uh, and, and share it because um, yeah, that's that's excellent. And a little, I think, a little window into the man Michael Schumacher was by the end of that Mercedes stint. I think he was a different character, and it's nice to get a little insight into <laughs> Michael's. Michael's brain, shall we say. Um, next question is from Ben Johnson, who says, Senna v. Prost v. Mansell v. PK was a battle of differing strengths across the 80s and the 90s. PK's best years predating the V10 era. We don't hear much about what made him special. What was it? Uh, Mark, tell us. Well, he was very talented, and that's always the first prerequisite, of course. Um, but I think what gave him his edge was that he was smart and almost cynical. Like he, he didn't care who was faster. He didn't care if there was somebody that could theoretically drive a car faster than him. He just make sure his car was faster. Um, you know, so if Ayrton Senna could, in theory, drive a car faster, so what? He'd get himself a better car, and that's what gave him great satisfaction. He was very, very smart technically. I was capable of thinking outside of the box way more than guys, even like Prost. Um, he was very, very original in his, his thinking, his ideas that he would he'd bring to people like Gordon Murray. Um, and I, he operated like that even within the Williams team against Mansell. And he'd get he'd get people on his side and he'd he'd he'd, he'd sort of polarize the team. And that's how he liked to work. And that that would you know drive Mansell to distraction and. Uh, He'd take the light and, and winding the other guy up, even if it was in the same team. So the, the first part of his career, the Brabham years, they were very much in tight cooperation with Gordon Murray. And it was, it was impossible to pierce them. And I remember talking about uh, with Mark Sura, who did a little stint there. And he said it was like being the third driver in a two-car team, just, just trying to get any audience at all with Gordon. So PK just dominated the whole thing. Um, and so that, yeah, that was very much sort of how he worked and, and then he would get people on his side like that and just dominate the whole thing and, uh, make everything sort of revolve around him. Um, but none of that would accounted for much if the inherent talent wasn't there and he was, he was just, just very, very quick and very, very good. I think it's worth adding on PK whenever you consider his career you've always got to remember there's a PK pre the Imola 87 crash and there's one after it he admitted after his career that his vision was impacted so that later era PK was still still a very formidable competitor but not the same driver he still managed to close out the 87 world championship and win races after that but I think you need to look to the first part of his career or the first two thirds perhaps it's more accurate to say to really get the measure of just how brilliant a driver he was. Next question is from Thomas Brampton, who says, pushing the limits of the time frame, why was the World Championship started in 1950? Motor racing had been around for almost half a century by then without one. So what triggered its inception? Ed, take us all the way back to day zero of the Formula One World Championship. Well, I can go back even further because it's worth noting there was a world championship as early as 1925, manufacturers only, not talked about much now, so it's no surprise that people don't remember about it. And there's also a European Drivers' Championship in uh, the 30s. And if you want to get into that, forget Abu Dhabi 2021, the debate about who won the 1939 European Drivers' Championship, was it Lang or Muller, is one that rages to this day, although you don't see it turning up on Twitter very often. So the idea of championships for Grand Prix racing wasn't new. There was a new motorcycle world championship 
championship in 49 as well so that helped the idea you had the new f1 rule set that had been created initially called formula a then it was international formula one international formula number one it was briefly called before becoming known as 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 formula one and you have to remember the context because obviously grand prix racing had come to a, a shuddering halt for world war Two. it sprang back into life in 46 or should say maybe limp back into life austerity f1 as it's been built because this was all pretty much pre-war cars that were got out well it just was pre-war cars that were got out of mothballs and whatever barn they'd been stashed in and you kind of got a functioning grand prix scene up and running so overall it, it seems to have been an italian idea uh, antonio brivio who was a pre-war driver of some ability won some minor grand prix and some big sports car races an olympic bobsledder as well but he was a delegate to the fia for italy and he apparently was the one that proposed the idea history's a little bit muddy on that but he was certainly heavily involved in it and italy was kind of the the epicenter of grand prix racing at this particular moment so they decided to create this world championship that was focused on grand preuves great challenges as they uh, as they call it and they threw the indy 500 in great race but nothing to do with grand prix racing so it was kind of needed to give some focus to Grand Prix racing, which had been very erratic and amorphous even before the, the war, very, very cyclical. And this kind of gave it the framework that it would later latch onto. It took a little bit of time, but we we did get to that point. And it's often said that the World Championship didn't matter initially, but it actually was quite significant, even if some of the press at the time rather ignored it, because it brought Alfa Romeo back into Grand Prix racing. They'd sort of stuttered to a halt early in 49, often attributed to all their drivers uh, dying in accidents or due to health problems. But actually, it was also partly because they had a production car, the, the, the Alfa Romeo 1900, the first um, Alfa Romeo mass production car to develop. But then they were marketing that and also the the Marshall Plan that was an American economic intervention to fund the rebuilding of uh, of Europe after the war, which was partly an economic influence uh, thing, came in and that also restricted how they could spend their money. But they then loosened up that scrutiny of the money when the, the, the challenge posed geopolitically by the Soviet bloc was becoming clear. So they wanted to keep Italy on side. So it's like, do what you want with the money. So that kind of created the circumstances for not just the world championship to start but also for it to have that support early on with Alfa Romeo and it took a while before it really got a proper foothold because there wasn't a Formula One world championship as such in 52 and 53 they had to run to F2 machinery because there weren't enough F1 cars but you had Ferrari had obviously risen as well so it was just an idea that I think was needed Formula One or Grand Prix racing rather needed some focal point some framework to be built around and I think this was probably initially a bit of a throwaway idea but something that actually really laid the foundations for what we uh, know today so it was just uh, it was an idea whose time had uh, had very very much come. Before we do more questions a quick thank you to Andrew Sillett and Neil Briscoe who both submitted donations on our Just Giving page and said uh, that they were not submitting a question they just wanted to support the cause and tell us to keep up the great podcast so Thank you very much for that. Uh, The next question comes from Ewan Taylor, who says, I have a memory of there being a rumour that Force India would copy Jensen Button's tyre strategy during changeable conditions. Did this rumour have any merit or was it complete nonsense? Mark, you can take this. And was there a point 
I could imagine there was a point where everyone was copying what Jensen did in changeable conditions. <laughs> I've, I've honestly not heard that one before. Um, I, I, it was maybe a dream. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> um, it was maybe that something that was said in exasperation after a strategy had gone wrong in Force India. I don't, I don't know. But Jensen was fantastic in changeable conditions. And he was also very good at calling it from the cockpit. It won him at least two of his race wins. He just had fantastic feel for the car. He, he describes it as he, he drives in a different way to the others. He's, he's, he's just looking at the the road surface and then translating how that, that 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 feels in his hands. And it's it's not it, 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 he feels the car differently. And he, he, whenever whenever the grip was you know maybe a bit drier on this corner, a bit wetter at that one, and not quite the same as that the next lap. And that's when he was at his best. You know, in full wet conditions, Lewis was probably faster, but it went changeable conditions where he could he was absolutely fantastic. And a couple of times he just straight out drove Lewis Hamilton as a teammate in those conditions. Um so yeah, I think uh, he was something special in, in those very specific conditions. And yeah, we'd, it wouldn't surprise me if people thought, let's just do what he does. But you would re- then need the driver in the cockpit to be able to <laughs> drive it the way he could. And I don't think there are many who, who could do that in those conditions. Next question is from Stephen Gates, who says, how different would mid to late 80s F1 have been if fate had been kinder and Gilles Villeneuve and Stefan Beloff were added into the mix? Ayrton v Gilles v Stefan would have been a sight to behold. Mark, I'm sure you agree with that sentiment. Oh, that's a stuff of fever dreams, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Incredibly exciting drivers, all of them. Um, Gilles, I believe, would have ended up in McLaren after leaving Ferrari at the end of 82. Ron Dennis was very keen to get him. Um, so with Villeneuve and Lauda already there, Prost wouldn't have been recruited for... Uh, by by McLaren for eighty four, he wouldn't have, you know, there wouldn't have been a vacancy there. Um, Belloff had already signed a contract f- with Ferrari for eighty six, so he would have been there. Um, Senna would have been a Lotus. So in that eighty four to eighty six period, it would have been absolutely epic between the three of them. Yeah, yeah, and um, yeah, what would have happened across? Where would he have gone in in that with the jigsaw place like that with the teams? Um, place like that, it, I, I don't know. Yeah, does Prost end up in sort of peak 80s Williams, maybe? Um, yeah, he'd have been a desirable... When he ends up on the driver market, he's going to be desirable, isn't he? Just You need to find a space for him. I think we always enjoy those hypotheticals. What if this person went here and then all the knock-on effects uh, and you can end up down some massive rabbit holes with those uh, actually we've got an if uh, driver conundrum question next from John Curry who says if Williams had taken on Satoru Nakajima in 1988 in order to retain Honda engines would we have seen a three-way fight for the title between Mansell in the Williams and Senna and Prost of course in the iconic McLaren MP44 could it have been 1986 in reverse Ed do you think Mansell in a Honda-powered Williams in 1988 makes it a three-way title fight yeah I think it would have done and I think perhaps it may even have been with Williams as favorites possibly dare I uh, say it certainly in terms of the quality of the car you have to remember that when you look at Williams in 88 you can't just simply look at the Williams FW12 as it was with a, a Honda engine instead of a Judd engine because that FW12 was 
done from scratch basically in order to deal with the fact they knew they'd have a less powerful engine so they were really aggressive on trying to lightweight it they obviously really doubled down on the uh, the reactive ride as they called it they didn't call it active suspension at that time because i think lotus had coined that that phrase so they they really built it around that and it had a lot of problems obviously the engine was massively underpowered the judd normally aspirated engine so the williams in 87 wouldn't have just uh, the williams in 88 rather wouldn't have been the FW12 just with a better engine it would have been a completely different car and I think Williams would have been very very strong in that scenario with it and the McLaren MP44 of uh, 88 for example is is seen as one of the great Grand Prix cars but I don't think it was as stunningly brilliant in real terms in terms of pushing the ceiling of what was possible you saw what March achieved with the normally aspirated car against it and even right early on the FW12 that did race got quite close, for example, in Brazil, straight out the box. So I think Williams, with continuity, building on the success of that car would have been formidable. And then it would have come down to Mansell versus Senna. I'm sure <laughs> I'm, I'm sure it would have been a, a great title fight. And obviously Prost would have been there as well. How would it change the dynamic within the McLaren team? Who knows? I think Mansell would have had a, a very, very good chance in an 88 Williams Honda, certainly. You, just, you, you can't say how good that car would have been, but chances are very good. Yeah, it's it's one of the things that's unfortunate about the MP44 in a way. It just didn't have the competition. Uh, next question is from Stephen Camp, who says, Having read up on the abandoned Honda RA109 via race car engineering, how likely do you feel Honda slash Brackley could have begun its F1 domination earlier with a fully prepped and backed package? So... Before I ask Matt to answer that question, if you want to find out the article, if you want to find the article Stephen's talking about, search for race car engineering, Honda's secret F1 car revealed. And it's a it's another Honda R&D project that was going on when they quit F1. And it's uh, it's it's not the uh, it's not what became the brawn. Matt, what do you think if we if we take away uh, the brawn elements of this story? Was what Honda was working on here potentially a route to to world championship glory for Brackley? No, I don't. I don't think so. I th- uh, Stephen uses the phrase "fully prepped and backed package," which and it'd be great to have seen what Honda could have done had it stuck around into that era. Because under okay, we're talking about the the Japanese R and D going on here, but Ross Braun was kind of marshalling that whole operation under his leadership into a different sort of shape. So it would have been a Brackley plus Japan project had it had it continued. But we're kind of asking Honda to stay committed to F1 and make sensible decisions decisions over a long-term period to get to a kind of current Mercedes-flavoured Brackley um, level of dominance. I said current, I kind of mean 2010s by that, basically. So I think what Stephen's saying there is if Honda had kind of stuck with it, had been doing its own stuff in Japan, been working under Ross Braun, been pumping the money in, could it have done the Mercedes 2010 stuff starting a bit sooner? I just can't see Honda having actually done that also mercedes as a as a company committed very wholeheartedly to what it was doing with that team um also you know it had the backing to get a long way ahead on the 2014 rule changes with the hybrid engine which is the absolute key although you know the the car itself was underrated but the margin superiority the engine had was was insane at that point and that was down to putting its money where its mouth was very early on that project so yeah there's a school of thought that 
Braun did better out of the uh, the Honda Exit because they've got a better engine in the shape of the Mercedes, which I think is true. Um, also, Honda would have carried on investing, whereas Braun kind of started the season well, then then tailed off. Okay, we've on bringing back V10s before, we've talked about how some of that was uh, Jensen Button stuttering a little bit in the middle of the season as he chased his what turned out to be his only title. Um, but also the, the fact that the money was not there anymore and the team was kind of preparing to take a different shape and have to be saved all over again in a way was a, was a big part in that. So there's a big what if about what would have happened in 2009 given that bronze success was also about most other teams getting things very wrong i can still see honda being champion with a braun led team and button in that season i can't see a scenario in which that then carries through to honda doing what mercedes then did with the team that was once honda yeah it's it's, it's quite a leap and it requires honda to uh be far more committed than they've even managed to be since coming back to F1 uh, in 2015 as well. Um, Two questions left. The penultimate question is from uh, a person called Ed Straw, who says, first time caller, long time listener. This one's for Glenn. (sighs) What are your memories of Jacques Villeneuve's brief stint with Renault in 2004? And did it make you regret your life choices? Uh, Ed, <laughs> Ed very generously donated so much money to ask this question. I have no choice but to answer it. Um, this was actually the second consecutive example of Villeneuve being paired with another driver I was a massive fan of and it not going very well. When when BAR signed Jensen Button for 2003, I was delighted I like Jensen as a, I liked Jensen as as a, a star, an up and coming still then star British driver, and I thought the idea of Button and Villeneuve in the same team, this is brilliant, um, and obviously they they fell out straight away, um, and then Jack's on the sidelines as Bar gets good, um, Jack and I both took that badly, not together, but um, and then, so then he gets the Renault call up, and by this point I. I was invested in the rise of Fernando Alonso. He was, he was kind of becoming my next guy. So when Villeneuve's putting alongside him, I wasn't even awaiting, you know, kind of thinking, oh, can can he beat him? I was just happy to see them together. I'd like them to be a bit closer together. <laughs> so I don't know. By this point, you also have to remember that being a Jacques Villeneuve fan up to 2003 and 2004 had required a lot of loyalty and your loyalty was tested regularly. So I was probably already conditioned for for a bit of disappointment and, and I didn't think, oh, he's going to be in the Renault, he's going to beat Alonso, um, this is going to be great and ev- everything's rosy again. Um, but it was a shame it didn't go a bit better. Uh, Ed, uh, we can't do this for anyone else who asked the question, but is that a satisfactory answer? Uh, largely, yes. I, I do think it's worth addressing the life choices thing, perhaps in a wider Villeneuve context. Yeah, uh, <laughs> I, I occasionally get asked, why am I a Villeneuve fan? The answer to that question is uh, goes all the way back to 1994. So I was following Nigel Mansell in IndyCar. That was great. Mansell trailed off in his title defence in 94. And I saw the name Villeneuve and I was aware of Gilles and everything that made him great. So I... I took more and more of an interest in Jack in that year. He was um, the star rookie of that season. He won his first race. He was second at the Indy 500. 
And then he won the championship the next year. So I just got caught up in this, this guy's brilliant. Isn't this wonderful? Meanwhile, in F1, I'd become a Damon Hill fan when Mansell left. Damon had, I think by his own admission, gone to pieces in 95. So I'd lost faith in Hill at the, at, at the time Villeneuve had come into my life. And then Jack comes to F1 as Hill's teammate and is, is winning races for, for Williams, who are my favourite team. So it all just snowballed from there. He wins the world championship. And really after that, it's, it's just... When you put those years together, and people have said this before, 94, 95, 96, 97... Jack Villeneuve's achievements and everything he did, he was one of the top racing drivers in the world. And there's no arguing that. Um, obviously, from that point on, it somewhat trailed off. Um, <laughs> but the experience of of discovering him in the way I did and becoming a fan in the way I did, um, that will stick with me forever. So no matter what he still drives now, no matter what he says now, um, he's still my guy. So within certain boundaries, I don't think there's really anything he could do now that would uh, would break my loyalty to him. And that doesn't mean uh, I will defend him against, you know, I, I won't I won't constantly die on that hill. If people want to tell me, yeah, he trailed off. If people want to tell me they wish he wasn't mouthing off all the time, all those things are fine. I'm not going to justify everything about him since. But uh, I will forever remain loyal to him and, and grateful for what he brought uh, to to motorsport on both sides of the Atlantic at his peak in the 1990s. So I will continue to refuse to regret my life choices, Ed, no matter how much you push me. Excellent. Well, I have to say Villeneuve was a, uh, a very, very good driver, so I, I will concede that. But uh, I couldn't miss this opportunity to make you talk about that uh, odd chapter of his career. Yeah, no, thanks very much for that. And obviously the... Um, what followed at Sauber and, and BMW wasn't much better. Uh, but I will always tell people he drove very well um, in the, not, the 2005 San Marino Grand Prix. I think that was his last really good drive uh, in a Sauber. He was he was up there and in the mix that day. Uh, so, Ed, the actual final question um, is not from you. It's addressed to you. Jewel Dirks wants to know, when will Ed Straw be putting out his merch range? Well, it's a challenging thing because it requires getting the rights to a lot of entities that have long since uh, disappeared. <laughs> Where can I get the necessary rights for an AGS mug, for example? But uh, yeah, I, I quite like the idea of... Uh, uh, something I, I would like to I would like one day on a serious note to do some kind of uh, book project related to some of this sort of thing that's perhaps counts as uh, as merch I'm not sure many people would go for uh, for a uh, an edge straw branded hoodie I think that would be a a, a questionable choice but uh, maybe if it came in LaRue style multicolors that would have that'd be a good look wouldn't it yeah yeah perhaps uh, mm. perhaps we could uh, do that but uh, the one thing I do know is as soon as you start messing around with reviving old F1 team names there's all sorts of legal problems as anyone who's tried to use the Brabham name seems to discover on a, uh, a regular basis. But there's some very good merch on the race website. It's not my stuff, but the race does a very, very good range. So do have a look there. I'm obliged to get that plug in. Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, there are Bring Back V10s, T-shirts, mugs, hoodies, uh, notepads. And um, yeah, you know, we, we, as Ed says, you copyright law makes it quite difficult unless you're an independent person on Etsy or something like that. But if, if you're a business like we are, it's a bit more challenging. But we do, if you look at the t-shirts, some of the t-shirts we've got, um, they are, the colour schemes are trying to pay tribute to uh, to cars of the era. And we've actually, uh, <laughs> we've recently launched 
the race has launched a baby grow range and there are bring back v10s baby grows as well so my uh my three-month-old son will be having a few of those very soon that seems like a fitting place to end this epic episode thank you so much to ed mark and matt for joining us taking all this time to answer so many questions but most importantly thank you to all of you that donated to a great cause like i say stick around after the episode finishes if you want to hear uh, a bit more about my personal blood cancer journey and why we're supporting this charity you can still donate to the page if you'd like to boost our total although the chance to get a question answered has of course now passed but we'll put the link in the description to the just giving page so you can support the cause if you'd like to and if you've enjoyed this trip into f1's vast history then go and search for bring back v10s on your podcast platform of choice and check out our entire back catalogue before we launch series eight of the show in july so before we sign this episode off entirely i wanted to share a bit more about my personal blood cancer journey which is a big part of why we chose to support blood cancer uk for 12 months here at the race Firstly, uh, I was diagnosed in the summer of 2019 with chronic myeloid leukemia, which is a form of blood cancer. I'm fine. I live a normal life. Uh, I, I take a, a tablet a day and that is it. The, the, the progress that has been made just in the last couple of decades means this is not as severe a diagnosis for me as it would have been once upon a time. If I'd been diagnosed 20 years earlier, it's not an exaggeration to say I'd have been given months to live. Uh, instead, yeah, I, I take a tablet a day and I'm happy to do that for the rest of my life. It, it is not really, uh, it's not really much of a sacrifice to uh, get to live a totally normal life, as I keep saying. But what I want to talk about is my journey to that diagnosis, because a big part of what Blood Cancer UK does, as well as supporting and funding research and all the progress and helping people continue to be here like I am a big part of it is about awareness and I didn't realize in early 2019 how many symptoms of blood cancer I was showing and um, for example uh, I'll go through quite a few of them here I was I was losing weight quite quickly now initially I didn't think anything of that because earlier in the year um, I had decided to try and lose a bit of weight you know um, do a bit more exercise, eat better, snack less. And I just thought it was working. Um, <laughs> so it took a while to detect that, but there are other things. Um, you know, I had night sweats, um, which is a big one to look out for. Um, I was often falling victim of, of stomach bugs, but they always seem to happen around the same sort of time as our, our new baby would have uh, a stomach problem. So we, I just assumed uh, I was catching bugs from her. Uh, but as things went on um, and the weight loss got you know more and more aggressive you know it was good when I got down to my wedding day weight and then when I kept going past it without really trying that hard to keep losing weight we thought something might be up then I started to lose my appetite um, I felt like something was was growing in my in my stomach um, I'll explain what that was shortly uh, and I was getting bloated immediately I'd have one bite of food and I was bloated and couldn't eat anything else um, suffered a real lack of energy um, which manifested itself most when trying to be active I used to cycle to work every day and there was one day where I was 
struggling along on a road between uh, Teddington and Twickenham, uh, which was on my ride back then. And uh, yeah, I was, I was struggling head down, not really getting anywhere. And this is this is not a joke. An old man on a rusty bike that I could hear grinding as the pedals went round just overtook me, sat bolt upright. I was on a road bike, you know, a bit more in a bit more of an aerodynamic position. And I thought that's a bit weird. Like I can't be that slow. I was playing football, and no matter how many weeks I played for, I had no energy. Like within five minutes, I was completely out of breath and had had no stamina whatsoever. Things really came to a head uh, when uh, my football team, uh, Tottenham, somehow made it to the Champions League final. I couldn't go to that game, couldn't get a ticket, <clears throat> but they showed it at the stadium in North London. So uh, I trekked across uh, London to watch it with a load of friends and with my mum. And during the second half of the game, which wasn't going well, we lost, um, I started to feel quite rough, just, just felt quite ill, couldn't finish my drinks. On the way home from that game, or from watching that game on the screens at the stadium, I felt really dizzy and sick on the train, to the point I got off a few stops early and thought I was going to pass out. Um, I found a shop outside of Surbiton Station, and bought a bottle of water, and sat there on the pavement for about an hour at this kind of 11 o'clock at night, just sipping this water, trying to get my bearings again and, and just get to a point where I felt comfortable standing up and calling a taxi to take me home. Um, I was in bed all day the next day, no energy to get up, feeling ill, was violently sick that night. This, remarkably now, looking back, this is stupid, it was still weeks before I'd finally see a doctor. Eventually, I, I couldn't get up off the sofa, I had so little energy and I was becoming so frail. My wife forced me to call a doctor um, and I was, I was sent to a walk-in centre after calling um, an NHS phone line that we have in the UK. Um, I gave them my symptoms, uh, like I say, weight loss, night sweats, no energy, something going on in my stomach. Um, and the nurse went outside and she made the mistake of leaving the door open and told a colleague that she had someone in the room uh, who needed urgent monitoring. No, I didn't know what that was. I, I thought at least she seems to know what's, you know, what's wrong with me potentially. She sent me for blood tests within a three days, three or four days, I'd been diagnosed with, what, like I say, CML, chronic myeloid leukemia. Um, I was given quite aggressive chemotherapy tablets for the first month. They made me feel quite ill every time I took them. And then I was put on to more regular medication, which I just take every day. The reason, oh, and to explain the lump, sorry, in the, in the stomach, which I said I would explain, uh, that was my spleen had grown to the size of a football inside me uh, and I was told they should be about the size of a fist uh, so that was causing a lot of my discomfort and was of course causing the, the bloating and everything else that was going on and affecting my appetite because there was no room for any of my other organs really um, and if that wasn't treated uh, that that can that can be disastrous if something goes wrong with your spleen in that way so the reason I'm talking about all that is because it's really important for Blood Cancer UK that more people don't get into the situation I was in. They spot the symptoms earlier because the earlier you spot these things, the earlier you get checked out, the better chance you have of, for want of a better phrase, being lucky. You know, you get you you get there in time that you can still do something about it. I left it way too late and I'm incredibly fortunate that things weren't much, much worse. And Blood Cancer UK, as I say, they 
fund a lot of the research that's going on that they are they are actively supporting the progress that's being made with all these treatments that as i say are things like that are the reason i'm still here it's the reason bring back v10s the podcast you've just listened to exists because we only created that in 2020 so if 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 i hadn't been able to be treated in 2019 the show would never have existed uh, which seems like a small <laughs> a small matter within all of this um and of course in 2020 we had the pandemic and that was a that was a freaky time for everybody but um blood cancer patients were considered in the extremely vulnerable category so you know we had even more extreme lockdown measures placed upon us uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic um i was having to i couldn't share i couldn't share bedroom bathroom and uh, i couldn't sit next to or eat with my family that was how careful they were being with clinically extremely vulnerable people but blood cancer uk gave us so much support during that time and was so good with once the rules were changing um they would update us in a way that wasn't wasn't being made available easily elsewhere uh, so you found out all this information because of them um they were great with uh, pushing to make sure the right people got access to, to vaccinations and treatments and kept you up to date if you wanted that stuff with how and when you could get it so they've they've supported me in other ways since then as well there's a phone line that you can ring up and if, if they can't talk to you then they always call you back that's that's incredible that means a lot they understand what what we're going through so it's multifaceted what they offer and i'm grateful for all of the things that they do and I, I was so happy that when i suggested to my colleagues at the race that this was the charity we support for the last 12 months um that's what we've done we've done it all kinds of things through the year thank you to everyone who donated i'm so happy that we got over ten thousand pounds in the end so thank you to everyone who's helped at any point over the last 12 months for us to raise so much money for a fantastic cause hopefully in years to come contributions like this one that we've made over the past year will help more people be able to to survive and be able to live live long lives with more severe types of blood cancer than the one i have and one day in the future the ultimate goal of course is that this will be eradicated entirely so thank you again so much for your support and if you kept listening to the show to hear me ramble on about my experience with blood cancer thank you for that to and i hope it's given a little insight into why this charity was so important to me and so important to us here at the race the athletic